Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, it tells us, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains." because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles were broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. And then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send him out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains, so all the demons begged him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter them. At once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine... Uh, those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. And then they came to Jesus, and they saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And Father, we humbly ask for the grace of God and just the help of the Holy Spirit to continue now to worship as we open ourselves, our heart, soul, and mind to the voice of what you would say to us by your spirit through your word that you've given to us. So speak to us, Lord, things that we each need to hear this day. We ask expectantly together in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, though it may be perhaps something that appears impressive, or maybe it even sometimes makes us feel important to influence groups or to have an impact on a crowd, we should never forget that reaching one person or taking the time to minister to an individual or to do something to help one individual is indeed important. In fact, it is very important, particularly and especially to God, who loves not just the world, but who loves individuals. And this is what we find Jesus in our passage. Again, remember, Jesus is God dwelling amongst humanity in flesh as a man, revealing what God is like in his humanity. And here we find God in the person of Jesus displaying that in front of us. He brings life change, powerful life change, to one person in our story here that was in a very desperate and unhealthy condition, displaying the reality that when our Lord's power becomes involved in a person's life, it does not matter what their condition or how bad of a condition they are in, their life by the power and the encounter of Jesus can radically be transformed. Now, remember the backdrop before we jump into our verses this morning. In our prior section, the end of chapter 4, Jesus had told the disciples, remember, he said, let us cross over to the other side, talking about the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so they transitioned, began to take that boat journey across the Sea of Galilee. And as they journeyed across the sea, they encountered a severe life-threatening storm. And remember, Jesus powerfully displayed his authority and his mighty power as God, commanding creation literally to obey him, and the storm immediately ceased. And in that moment, his disciples passing through that storm, seeing it cease, they learned lessons 
both about themselves, their own doubts, their own insecurities, their own lack of trust in the Lord, as well as they learn some new things about Jesus and his power and his authority over everything. And now perhaps they might even be wondering what could be so important on the other side of the lake that he would make us pass through that severe storm. What in the world is so important over there on the other side? And now we see what it was. Jesus was interested in helping, Mark chapter 5, one person. And to help that one person, he gets great mileage out of everything he does because ultimately that one person's changed life ends up affecting change and outreach to that entire region of the Gadarenes. We'll talk more about that later on. And I think it's a good reminder that sometimes the hardships that we pass through help bring us to a place where ultimately we are able to help other people in need. And we may not like the hardship that we pass through. We may not prefer the hardship that we pass through. But I tell you this, God never wastes a trial. He never wastes a storm. He never loses the opportunity in a difficulty. Our God is able to maximize everything, work all things for the good, to redeem every situation. And sometimes the hardships and storms we pass through are the very vehicle that bring us to the other side so that we can somehow help or be used by God to a greater extent maybe than we ever would have imagined. Now look with me, verse 1, as they now get to the other side. Our events start to unfold. Mark 5 verse 1 says, Then they came to the other side of the sea, that's the Sea of Galilee, to the country of the Gadarenes. So they've now landed there on the other shore, on the eastern side, which also means that they're on the eastern side as well of the Jordan River. Now I point that out for a reason, because notice verse 1, look at it there, tells us that they've now come to the region or the country of the Gadarenes. The Gadarenes. It is very likely, that's a territorial reference to the tribe of Gad. And if you remember from the Old Testament, the tribe of Gad was one of the two tribes who chose to remain on the eastern side of the Jordan when God was leading the children of Israel into the promised land on the other side of the Jordan. And the 10 tribes went in. But remember, the two tribes specifically asked, could we please just stay over here? We like this region better and we'll come fight the battles with you. And they opted in a sense, if you would, to settle outside of God's boundaries, outside of the region and the original intention of what God wanted for them with the rest of the tribes and settle on the Eastern side. Gad was one of those tribes. It may be why this area is called the Gadarenes. Now, over time, choosing to settle outside of God's intended boundary, that region clearly was much more vulnerable to become intermingled with Gentile people and Gentile practices, which made it much more easy to be susceptible to doing things that were outside of God's will. Now, verse 2 goes on to tell us that as Jesus comes to this region now on the eastern side, that when he had come out of the boat, notice, immediately... There met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So as soon as Jesus steps out of the boat, Mark loves this word immediately. It's an action gospel. The idea is the very first thing that happened as soon as they arrive on the shore is they have an encounter with this demonically ruled man. And again, we see the reason now why Jesus wanted to go to the other side. This didn't surprise Jesus. He's God. He knew what was on the other side. He's never shocked by anything that unfolds. There's this desperate, needy man that our Lord wanted to liberate. He wanted to help him. He wanted to restore him back to God's original heart intention as someone created in the image of God. Again, we can look at this man, and he's in a deplorable condition, and we may think, oh, my goodness. But look, you have to always remember, at one point, that was an innocent young man who was someone's son. He wasn't born in that condition. Sadly, he developed into that condition that we find him in here in our text. But again, he's a man who was made in the image of God, who Jesus loved. And this man, Jesus wants to help. And he also becomes a pivotal vessel to then 
in a sense, spread the love of God and the kingdom of God all throughout that region in his gratitude afterwards. Now, Mark tells us the problem this man was suffering here in verse 2 by simply describing him as that he was a man who met Jesus, verse 2 says, that he had an unclean spirit. Now, that term unclean in the original language speaks of being impure. It's a term that speaks of being filthy or defiled. And it's the same term that also is translated in other places, an evil spirit. So clearly what the Bible is giving us indication of here, this man who's ruled by an unclean spirit within, without question, we find a man right here in the scripture suffering from a legitimate case of what we would call demon possession, meaning that his body was presently literally indwelt with and under the control of a demonic spirit that was residing within him, this demonic spirit of perverse origin that came as the result of the rebellion and the fall of the devil. The Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 14, as well as in Ezekiel chapter 28, some of the origin of the devil, who himself is an angelic being, was created amongst the angelic realm. But remember, though the devil had been created as an angelic being, and the Bible tells us he was a, a most anointed cherub. He was of the order, it seems, even of, of, to some degree, seemed had a degree of, of power and influence, that he had a high-ranking position among the spiritual realms. And yet, unfortunately, he was lifted up in pride. Isaiah 14 says he said he desired to be like God. He wasn't content with the power that he had. He wanted more power. He wasn't content with the authority in the ministry he already had. He wanted greater power, greater ministry, greater authority. And because of that, his heart became puffed up with pride. And as a result, it led to his rebellion against God. And ultimately, we know he was cast out of his heavenly position because of his pride, falling, becoming defiled as a spiritual being, becoming polluted, unclean, and corrupt himself. And Revelation 12 tells us that when Satan was cast to the earth, that he drew one-third of the angelic realm somehow with him who followed after his antics, and that part of the angelic realm became what we now know as the demonic spirits or unclean spirits, demons as we often refer them to. And this group of Angels who became unclean spirits or demons, now in their distorted, perverse, fallen state, are working directly as servants of the devil to rebel against God and all of God's will, to promote evil all around the planet, and to try and perversely pollute the planet, and to destroy and to deceive people who God created and loves, who are made in the image of God. And so we see these demonic beings doing such. Now, Here's the reality. In some cases, we see both in Scripture as well as in society, and I don't know if you've ever had experiences, I, on occasion or two, clearly know that I've encountered an individual who was more than just being harassed by the devil and genuinely was possessed by a demonic spirit within. Some of you, maybe if you've been on a missions trip to a country, that was one of the first occasions I had that experience where it was very evident what was going on. And the Bible does teach that someone literally can potentially be actually indwelt by a demonic spirit and come under the full control of a demonic spirit. Now, how this man became inhabited and possessed by this demonic spirit, we don't know. We're not told. We can only speculate. I mean, did he open himself up to that realm at some point? The Bible is silent. The reality is he is clearly under the control and the governance of this demonic spirit residing within him. And how important, folks, by way of application for ourselves, that we recognize this reality of the devil's existence and the reality that these spiritual forces of evil are real. And they're no joke. There is nothing the devil would love more than for people to have this fanciful idea that he's this Halloween character with a little red cape and a pitchfork and a dark, long, black goatee who kind of just is the person whispering a bad idea in your ear and to kind of dismiss 
the perverse, powerful, destructive influences of the devil himself as Satan, as well as the influences of other demonic beings that are, in a sense, cooperating with what he's doing. There is clearly an unseen realm of spiritual activity that is very real, that the Word of God speaks about, that God draws attention to, and just like we understand as Christians and from the Word of God that when we accept Jesus Christ and we receive him as Savior and Lord in salvation, that the Bible teaches that we are filled or indwelt with the presence of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, who lives inside of us, and we come under the influence of God's Holy Spirit as God's Spirit dwells within us in like manner. If a person is not saved, and they have never been converted, and they are not indwelt with the Spirit of God, it is essential to understand that beyond just being harassed by a demon, that person with a spiritual vacancy is to a degree still potentially vulnerable to what we see happening in this text here, which is a reality and a sobering reality. Look, Satan is shrewd, and he draws and deceives very slowly and very, very deceptively. And this is a tragic condition we see this man in. And I think Satan subtly and slowly tries to deceive and to draw because he's a master deceiver. And so because of that and understanding these spiritual realities, to me, it's very, very dangerous when people sometimes begin to have a strange fascination with spiritual realms. And this can happen very subtly where, you know, there's this interest or this, you know, kind of kind of attraction to things like Ouija boards and spirit guides and channeling the dead or, you know, psychic readers or even realms of things like, you know, witchcraft and sorcery and wizards. And, and look, whether it's in games or in books or funny stuff that seems to be just this innocent fun, I think we have to soberly recognize these are real things. These are real things that ruin people's lives, that have the power to take control over human beings and look what's happening with this man's life. You know, it's interesting as well, Galatians chapter 5 describes the terms there of the works of the flesh, and he describes different things that are part of the works of the sin nature. And one of the terms in that list of the works of the flesh and the sin nature is the term sorcery. Here's what's very unique. When you look at that term sorcery in the original language in the Greek, it's the term pharmakia. Sound familiar? It's where we get our English word pharmacy, which is a reference to drug usage and my personal conviction and those who I've known throughout my life. To me, that becomes a strong warning that one of the ways, and I say one of the ways, that one of the clear ways at times, people can open themselves up to other realms is through pharmakia. Sorcery, as the Bible calls it, interesting, translated sorcery, pharmakia, because when a person comes under the control of chemical substances and they enter into an altered state of consciousness, all of a sudden you start to become open to other realms that you should never become open to as you come into an altered state of consciousness. And I think the devil clearly knows how to manipulate this and create bizarre experiences. And again, how this man came into this condition, we don't know. But the reality is, is this is not something that should just be dismissed as a joke. This man genuinely was in a precarious, horrible condition. Verses 2 to 5 give us kind of a parenthetical statement now to give us some clear description of his condition. Look what it says. It says he was in the tombs. Verse 3 says, he had his dwelling among the tombs, which with no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. People had tried to shackle him, and the chains had been pulled apart by him. He broke them off, literally. And the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame this man. And always, verse 5 says, night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out, the idea is screeching, and cutting himself, take note of that, with stones. 
So notice here some clear characteristics of this demonic influence in this man's state who is currently being possessed and ruled over and controlled by a demonic spirit. Why is that important? Because I think as we analyze his condition in the word of God there, it gives very clear insight representative to what types of things Satan does in his influence upon human beings' lives. I mean, a few things we can tell here by observation. The first I'd point your attention to from the you know, beginning of verse 3 is that demons seek to entice or draw people toward things of death. Demons seek to entice and draw people towards things of death or the dead, or we might even say toward dark things. Do you notice where the Bible tells us twice in verse 2 and in twice again in verse 3 repetitiously that this man didn't say he visited, it said he was, verse 3, look at it there, dwelling amongst the tombs. So as he was in these mountains and where the caves were, and many times that's where they would, among the mountains and the caves, that's where they would bury their dead. So the tombs, there's a reference to caves where they would carve out burial sites. So this man found himself, for whatever reasons, because of the influences, he was drawn to hang out, to dwell, to live among, to spend his time among the dead, among decaying bodies and rotting bones in a very dark atmosphere. His interest, bizarrely, was in the things of death. And he found himself drawn to dark things, dark atmospheres, morbid, creepy stuff, he was drawn to dark things and dark places, and he actually preferred involvement in dark things. And he was inclined towards that. And I think this is a good reminder because this is clearly one of the influences that demons have upon human lives is to get people engaged in and actually enjoying things that are dark, that involve death, and that are destructive and ruinous, people wanting to appear in dark ways, people, in a sense, finding themselves drawn towards dark activities, living in patterns of darkness, just literally dwelling in ongoing darkness and actually finding that as a way of life that they become accustomed to. Demons also, secondly, seek to promote, notice in this man, they seek to promote uncontrolled living. That is behavior that's without restraint, where self-control was casted off. Again, you notice how verse 3 and 4 describe this man. He was dwelling among the tombs, but then it says, nobody could bind him, not even with chains. Verse 4, they often bound him before with shackles and chains, and the chains literally would be pulled apart, and the shackles would be broken in pieces. And then verse 4 says, almost like he's a ferocious animal, neither could anyone tame him. In other words, God's word is showing to us there that the influence of the demons upon his life were making him live totally out of control, like a wild, rabid beast. Interesting, Matthew's account of the same story says that this man, it says, was exceedingly fierce so that no one could even pass by the area. The reason why is because it was unsafe to even be near him. He literally was so fierce and aggressive and destructive. He was dangerous to himself. He was dangerous to others. He was dangerous in the community. All they could do was try to restrain his out-of-control behavior and try to tame him, and that wasn't even working. It says they would shackle him, and he would break the shackles off. He was just, in a sense, living completely, literally out of control, so out of his mind, and that's fair to say because the end of the story says he was back in his right mind. He was so out of his mind and, in a sense, casting off restraint, living so chaotically like a wild beast that his family and friends couldn't even interact with him. Nobody in the community could. He just became an absolute danger in his behavior to everyone. Luke's account of the story tells us that the man was also naked and wore no clothes, which shows that there was a lewdness about him, that, that he would do vile things and he didn't have any sense of shame. And it didn't even phase him. It didn't even bother him. And again, it's a reminder that the demonic realm and the influence of demons seek to get people to live in ways where they just cast off restraint. 
and live just completely outside of any form of self-control. They behave in ways without self-control, no moral restraint, like a wild beast. Whether that's in sexual perversion, again, whether that's in anger and violence and brutality, whether, again, that's in you know, unrestrained drug and alcohol usage, just completely chaotic. Notice also we can tell from verse 3 and 4 the way the man was breaking off the chains. A third thing we could tell is that demons infuse people with, we might say, supernatural strength. I mean, this guy was breaking chains off, <laughs> breaking shackles. That's pretty impressive as far as a degree of strength, which appears, I don't know, but from what I see in the Word of God and what I've seen in human beings' lives, that demons, when they inhabit a body, can seem to take over the motor function of a person and infuse them with almost supernatural strength to do some pretty scary and chaotic things. Finally, notice also here, fourthly, that the demons caused this man, and they always cause people, to not only be miserable, but to pursue self-harm and mutilation. The demons were causing this man to not only be miserable, but literally to pursue self-harm and mutilation. Again, look at verse 5. What does it say? That always night and day, the idea is all day long, he was in the mountains and the tombs, and what was he doing? Screeching, crying out, and cutting himself with jagged stones. Scraping himself with stones, cutting himself with stones. Self-mutilation behaving in ways that were completely self-destructive. These demons were manipulating this man's thoughts in his mind to punish himself, to do things to himself that were completely irrational and self-destructive behavior. And let me just say this morning, forms of self-destructive behavior, when they manifest in a human being, I tell you those ideas, those thoughts are from demonic origin. I'm not saying every time a person manifests self-destructive behaviors that they're demon-possessed. So don't challenge me afterward. Are you trying to say my friend is demon-possessed? That's not what I'm saying. But what I am telling you is that God loves us. God has created us. And one of the things he's hardwired, the many things he's hardwired into us, is this thing we call a survival instinct, Right? If I go down here and I start grabbing Matt by the throat and start choking him, I know I'd lose right away, but what, what, and then he grabbed me, but my survival instinct would kick in. It's ingrained in us, right? We, we, survival instinct is a strong thing. So when you override survival instinct and people do self-destructive, self-harming things to themselves, even to the point of suicidal tendencies or suicidal attempts, Something clearly is overriding a hardwired self-preservation thing that God's put into human beings. And I tell you what it is, it's satanic. The thoughts of it are satanic. You know, Jesus said of the devil, what did he say of him? That he's a murderer from the beginning. In other words, he incites killing and destroying. Jesus said he comes to rob, kill, and destroy. He's a thief. And so when we see these things going on, someone doing self-harm, someone having suicidal thoughts or tendencies, we know the influence of that. It's of satanic origin, the thoughts behind that. It's the lying whisper of the devil in a person's ear encouraging them to do something that is totally contradictory to the love of God and the plan of God and the will of God. You know, to me, I find it interesting that in this passage here, what's this man doing? He's cutting himself with stones. And we thought cutting was something new under the sun that young people struggle with sometimes. Or ultimately we see he goes into the, the demons go into the pigs and what do they do? They rush off the cliff and they perish. They destroy themselves, self-destructive behavior, literally killing themselves. And so again, we see the influence very clearly. Here is this poor man literally being controlled by these demons. He's, his life's been desecrated from what it normally was supposed to be. His dignity and his life have been destroyed, engrossed in darkness. He's out of control at this point. He's miserable in his soul. He's tormented. He's trying to destroy and punish himself. He's isolated. He's lonely. He's full of anger and rage. He's harming himself. He's harming others. Society can't help him. Society doesn't even know what to do with him. 
And the terms that we would coin that today say that person is a societal reject. That person is in a helpless condition. They're beyond reach. But look, the reality is this, folks. Let us never forget. The Bible says that with God, all things are possible. And that Jesus can save to the uttermost. And this is what's displayed when you see the gravity of this man's condition. And then verse 6 goes on to say, but when he saw Jesus from, notice, now the Bible says, from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. So as soon as this desperate man in this deplorable, desperate condition sees Jesus, it says here, notice that he runs towards Jesus. Now, now take note of what happens here. He runs towards Jesus in verse 6 because he's yearning deep within. The man is for help. He knows his condition is desperate. He wants to be liberated. He runs towards Jesus, but notice verse 7, it says, and then cries out the demons within him, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high? I implore you, don't torment me. Now, I want you to notice something. Do you notice the man runs towards Jesus, the demons start conflicting with what the man's wanting to do. Do you notice how conflicted he is? In one sense, in his humanity, he's running to Jesus because he wants help, but then as the demons influence him, he's conflicted within his soul, and basically the demons are saying, what do we want to do with you, Jesus? Leave us alone. Don't torment us. And it's a, it's a very clear picture of what happens, the conflict that can go on inside of a, of, of a human life. The one part of him is humanity. He wants Jesus' help desperately, but yet there's this conflicted thing. And as he runs towards Jesus, it says, verse 6, that he runs and he begins to worship him. Uh, the language indicates to fall prostrate in humble submission. And what it's a picture of is the lesser always bows to the greater, even with the demons within him. Clearly, he knows who Jesus is, the Son of God, and he bows down because even the demons themselves, they're very powerful. Though no man could tame and control this guy, the presence and the authority of Jesus instantly humbles him because the power of Jesus is so much greater. And look, it doesn't matter how messed up a life is, folks. Jesus is powerful, and the best thing anyone with a ruined life can do is run to Jesus and to humble themselves before Jesus. James 4 says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And that's exactly what we see happening with this man. Now, verse 7 gives to us the first indication. We start to hear the voice of these demons speaking through this man. As I said, notice, they instantly recognize who Jesus is. They weren't the slightest bit confused. They call him Jesus, son of the most high God. They understood his deity and who he was, and that he had absolute authority and power over them in the demonic realm. That though they were powerful, yes, they realized that Satan and the demons are not Jesus' equal or God's equal, that God and Jesus, his son, are creator, and they are created beings. And they are fully subservient to the authority of our Lord and our God. And so they render instant submission. They say here, Please do not torment us to torture, to, to bring into pain. Matthew's account, they said, don't torment us before the time, the time. In other words, the demons understood in the understanding of the ultimate plan of God that they have an appointed time and that one day they will be cast aside. They will find themselves being cast, Revelation 20 says, into a place called the bottomless pit where the Bible says it's a place of everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And tragically, that place prepared for the devil and the angels is the only option for human beings to go to if they don't want to go to heaven. Hell was never intended for human beings. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. But if someone does not want to be with Jesus Christ and be with God in heaven, we're eternal creatures. A person must go somewhere eternally. And the only other option is the lake of fire. And one day, these demons know that they will be cast into that place now look at the conversation, verse 8. Jesus said, come out of the man, unclean spirit. And then he asked him, what is your name? 
And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. So as Jesus asks, what is your name? Perhaps there lovingly, I'm wondering, is he trying to reach the man? What is your name? Jesus knows he's possessed by multiple spirits, as we're going to see in a moment here. But Jesus says, what's your name? Because again, I think it's the love of Jesus recognizing people may think this person is an out-of-control wild animal and a societal reject that's just a menace and should be written off the earth. But Jesus thinking, this is somebody's little boy, man. This was an eight-year-old kid that used to ride his bike around the Sea of Galilee and, and play with his friends. And so Jesus says to him, what is your name? It's almost as he's lovingly trying to engage and reach out to the man, yet the demon controlling him, and this is where it gets a little freaky, speaks out instead and says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, Legion was a term for 6,000 Roman soldiers. It's a pretty big number. And he says, my name is Legion. The implication here is this guy clearly has more than one demonic spirit residing within him. If I can say it you know, graciously, but honestly, he's got a whole multitude of guests. The inn is full. He's got a lot of guests in there. The term Legion implies 6,000 soldiers. Now, what we do know is when the demons, plural, are cast out of him, they at least occupy 2,000 swine. So it's just an emphasis of how deplorable and how, in a sense, you know, degraded this man's condition was, how sad and how tragic that he was literally under this much darkness in this time. Now, verse 9, you notice also, if you would, in the answer now, the change of pronouns... From singular to plural, if I could draw your attention to again, the demon speaking, say, my, that's singular, name is legion, for we are many, that's plural. And verse 10, he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now, that's a little bit freaky there. Singular, plural, we, I, we, I, I don't even want to begin to think about like a sci-fi movie, what the sound of the voice was. Again, I'm wondering if the disciples or anything like you and I, they are probably halfway back into the boat ready, ready to go back across the shoreline. You finish this up, Jesus, we'll be in the boat. I, mean, I remember that when I was a police chaplain, when we were pastoring back at Calvary Chapel, York for six years, I wasn't one of the cowboy police chaplains. They would make us wear a bulletproof vest when we did ride-alongs with the police officers, and they wouldn't even give us a can of mace. So as soon as something got rough, and especially if a weapon came out, I was slinking right back to that squad car underneath the dashboard. I'm thinking, you don't pay me enough for that, and you didn't give me nothing to defend myself. At this point, I'm going to let him handle that. He's got the firepower. And I imagine this must have been pretty scary for the disciples here experiencing all this. Verse 10 says, they begged Jesus that he would not send them out of the country. Verse 11 says, now a large herd of swine was feeding near the mountains, so all the demons, verse 12, plural, begged Jesus, saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. So as the conversation continues, notice the demons can control the man, but they have no authority and control over Jesus. It's the inverse. They're begging Jesus, making a request of Jesus when they see this herd of swine, saying, please don't just cast us out. Send us into that herd of swine over there. Now, I want you to notice something again about demons. They do not like to be disembodied on the earth. If they're going to be put out of this man, they're asking, can you cast us into those creatures over there? Interestingly enough, Jesus in Luke chapter 11 says, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to the house which I left referring to a person's body. When it arrives, he finds the house swept clean and put in order. In other words, reform without spiritual transformation where the spirit now dwells within. Be very careful of just reform. I'm going to reform my life. You're leaving a vacancy in your soul. It says the demon goes back, finds the house cleaned up, and he says, hey, seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they go in and live there and the final condition of that man is worse than the first. 
But notice, demons do not like to be uninhabited. They like to be able, excuse me, disembodied. They like to have a place of habitation. Now, the best way to guard against the demon taking control of any human life is to have a resident when they show up. If the spirit of the living God dwells within you, you got a big vacancy sign on your chest that says to any demonic spirit, no vacancy. No vacancy. And if you're sealed with the spirit of the living God, the devil cannot break that seal. God is stronger. And there's a, one of the greatest safeguards of being a child of God, to have the spirit indwelling you so that no other spirit can come indwell you. Verse 12 tells us as well that all the demons were begging, send us into the swine that we enter them. Verse 13 says, and at once Jesus gave them, I want you to notice this, permission. He gave them permission. The demons can do nothing, powerful as they are, without the complete allowance of God himself. You know, Job 1 and 2 teaches that, that no demon, no no spiritual being, Satan himself, cannot do anything to tempt, to bring a trial, anything, without the permissive allowance of God's ultimate authority over all things. So they beg Jesus, please, can we go into that herd of swine? Jesus gives them permission, verse 13 says, and the unclean spirits went out of the man. They entered into the swine, to the herd of pigs, and there was about 2,000, and the herd ran violently down the steep place, into the sea and drowned in it. Again, please notice the instant reaction, the moment that those demons go out of the man and into the herd of swine of the pigs is they instantly do what? Self-destruct. They instantly run down the steep cliff and drown themselves in self-destruction. Now, let me just say as a sidelight, whether or not this passage teaches that animals can be demon-possessed, I've had a pet or two. I won't elaborate. You can come to your own doctrinal decision there, but it is a tragedy to see the influence of those demons, that they led those pigs to ultimately self-destruct. Again, the destruction of life, that's the devil's insanity, folks. That's the, de that's the devil's intention, to rob, kill, destroy. He has murderous, cruel, destructive intentions with anything or anyone. That's what he wants to do, to bring destruction and defilement. Verse 14 says, so those who fed the swine went and told in the city and in the country, and then they went out to see what it was that had happened. So now curiosities are raised, aroused. Verse 15, then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed, he's now clothed properly, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. The language means they were struck with awe. They were utterly amazed at this miracle of a radically changed life. Because in an instant, this man in this diabolical, defiled condition, where his life looked ravaged and destroyed forever, instantaneously his life's transformed. Something happened in that moment that no one dreamed ever could. He changed. For one reason, because Jesus loved him and the power of Jesus brought the change. And thank goodness the Bible tells us that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And to know that that is the same Jesus with the same love. And here's this man now, verse 15 describes him. He's calm, he's peaceful. His whole disposition has changed. He's now dressed and clothed properly, which means he's now become respectful. <laughs> he finds himself here in a completely different state. Mentally, it says he's now in his right mind. Restoration of the mind. Things that were damaged and destroyed, the Holy Spirit healed and fixed and cured in his mind. And he's a completely different human being. What a wonderful thing to see the power of Jesus to change a life. Verse 16 says, and those who saw it told how it had happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine, how they went off the cliff, 
And they began, notice the people now in the region, to plead with Jesus to depart from their region. Now, you would think these people would be rejoicing, right, over this transformed life of this man in this community out of compassion for him, compassion for his family. Hey, this is much better for the community now. This man has been changed. But instead, they want Jesus to leave. Why? Because they just lost a whole herd of swine. That was profit. This is their pig business. And so now they're literally disturbed and angry because they're more interested in their lucrative pig business than they are a person's life. They're more concerned about wealth and money than the well-being of a human being. And sadly, folks, today still, there are people who truly care more about money than the cost of helping human lives. And they will opt for the business, for the money, for the finances, for the wealth. What's interesting, keep in mind, if this indeed the Gadarenes area is where the Jewish tribe of Gad, remember we talked about that earlier, had settled, the bigger problem is if these are Jews on the other side of the Jordan, what are they doing with the pig business? Because Mosaic law said that pork was to be unkosher in a selective Jewish diet. So the bigger question is, why do we even have an undercover pig business going on? Why do we have this illegal industry over here on the other side thinking that, hey, nobody sees what we're doing here. We're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Perhaps they're thinking nobody knew what they were doing there and their little undercover illegal business. Look, maybe no person knew, but Jesus knew. And Jesus goes to the other side of Jordan, not only to help the man, but to expose their illegal business. Interesting, Numbers chapter 32, which is the same chapter where we see them wanting to, in a sense, be on the other side. A warning comes there in Numbers 32. It says this, if you sin against the Lord, be sure your sin will find you out. Many generations later, <laughs> they got this little thing going on, and Jesus comes and flushes it all out in this situation. Perhaps it's one of the reasons Jesus had no problem, even for the animal lovers, to let the demons go into the pigs and ultimately for them to self-destruct because maybe Jesus cares more about people than he even does about animals. And that may step on some people's toes, but we're living in a generation now where people are more stinking concerned about taking care of planets and plants and animals than they care about human beings, and that's wrong. And Jesus just shuts the whole business down. Look, this is, this is wrong. This is just another dark thing that's causing people to live outside of God's will. Now, whatever the case, the farmers who are doing this, they realize the presence among Jesus or the presence of Jesus among them was doing what? It's requiring costs now. It's bringing change to what they're doing. And they clearly decided they didn't want change. So what do they do? We don't want your change, Jesus. Can you please leave? We don't want to bear the cost of your involvement here, so they ask Jesus to leave. And again, many people today, sadly, are in the same place. They may realize something they're doing is wrong before God, but they realize if they let Jesus into their life or they let Jesus become involved in their life, that may mean they need to change. Or it may mean that they need to bear some type of a cost. Maybe it's the cost of giving up a relationship if they're going to let Jesus be involved in their life. And they don't want to give up the relationship. Maybe it's the cost of some habit or sinful behavior or indulgence or whatever, and therefore they don't want to accept the change in a sense just like these people. They kind of just want to keep dwelling with the pigs. And because they don't want to stop dwelling with the pigs, they say, Jesus, no thanks. If you could just leave me alone. If you could just go away. And here's the thing, folks. Jesus is a perfect gentleman. He will not force himself on any human being. Think of all the power that Jesus has, but Jesus won't force himself on anyone. And if someone dismisses Jesus and drives Jesus away, he will graciously depart if that's what they want to respect their free will. Now, verse 18 says, when they got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed, no surprise of this, right? He begs Jesus, verse 18, that he might be with him. Again, his life's been transformed, man. <laughs> He's full of gratitude. He's, he's, he's in love with Jesus now. Lord, can I come with you? I want to travel around with you. Go back over there to the other side of the Jordan and be a part of your ministry team. Verse 19 says, however, Jesus did not permit him, 
but said, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim throughout Decapolis, that's that region, 10 cities, all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. Now, I want you to notice how the story concludes here, the event. Jesus does not permit this man's request, but instead he tells him, look, I want you to go home. Go tell your family, go tell your friends what the Lord has done in your life. Even though that community rejected Jesus, he had not rejected them and he loved them. And Jesus knows there is no greater testimony than a changed life. And so Jesus says, everybody knows what you used to be like, bro. (laughs) Go show them the change in your life. Tell them what happened, man. Let them see that this guy that was a crazy man in the tombs is now radically in love with Jesus and changed. That's powerful testimony. Jesus knew that would have an impact. Secondly, I think it's also a reminder as Jesus says, go home to your friends, tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he's had compassion on you. I think Jesus is also displaying something else that all ministry, all ministry should begin at home. That's where ministry begins. If you don't have a compassion and an interest and you are not actively involved ministering to your own family and to your own friends, you have no business trying to minister to the neighbors yet. Ministry starts at home. After we are giving ourselves properly to home, then from there, yes, but Jesus wants our ministry to begin at home and to begin reaching those who we already have connection with and to show his love and his power to other people. And just like in this man's situation, sometimes though we ask the Lord for permission to do something, the Lord just may not give us our way. Isn't it interesting? The demons ask for permission and Jesus grants it. This man asks, and it says in the text, verse 19, Jesus did not permit him. He said yes to demons. He said no to his new convert. Because the reality is sometimes we must understand that Jesus may hear what we're requesting or what we're asking, but step one in living under the lordship of Jesus is dying to our own will and our own ideas and recognizing we submit to authority now, to the authority of Jesus. And this is a huge part of becoming a follower of Jesus, that we don't do our own thing. We realize Jesus always knows best and has a better plan. And so if Jesus wants to redirect us, Like this man, we shouldn't be bitter or stubborn or throw a tantrum and get disappointed. This man just followed Jesus. He did what Jesus asked. And we're going to see as we come to the end of Mark chapter 6 that because this man didn't whine in disappointment but let Jesus redirect his paths and submitted, it says that many people in that region greet Jesus the next time he comes back over. What happened? One man reached a whole bunch of other people for Christ. And it's a good reminder that Jesus always knows best. Let's stand together.